Well, it's really my uh, pleasure uh, to be with you guys here and uh, really looking forward and excited for uh, this weekend and what God has in store for you and your community. Um, so I, I, I brought a, along a few of our church members, and so I just want to introduce them really quick. Uh, there's actually eight of us, uh, I mean nine of us, including myself, um, but only three are in this service, and the other four are ministering right now, and then one is on the way. Uh, she's actually uh, doing a little work trip here in Seoul, and so she got out a little late today. And so this is G.A. Huang. So G.A.'s uh, been with us. She used to be our intercessory prayer leader, uh, and then she moved to Boston for a bit and came back. But she's a, a Korean, uh, but was uh, raised in Hong Kong. And she's now um, uh, working in an um, insurance firm as executive there. This is Juhi, and Juhi is also Korean, uh, but also raised in Hong Kong. She moved there when she was seven years old. And so she's an accountant. And this is Marilyn. And Marilyn on oh, Juhi is on our, what we call our inner healing deliverance ministry. It's called The River. And, uh, um, and Marilyn is uh, part of our intercessor prayer team as well. And she's South African. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, and so she's, uh, um, she's actually a diplomat. And so uh, she uh, runs the office, the, the embassy in Hong Kong. And, uh, and so if you want to get some good stuff, she actually worked under Nelson Mandela. And so you guys can, uh, right, Mandela, the clerk, right? I, you told me all of them today. And so really exciting. Their whole family has been part of our church and incredible. And so you're, feel free to talk to any of them uh, during the time. And if you want like an incredible, powerful, prophetic word, don't come to me. Go to them. <laughs> Okay, uh, you can come to me, but mine will be pathetic and they'll be prophetic, right? So <laughs> you can get the, the difference uh, that's there. And uh, uh, yeah, we've been, we've really enjoyed uh, spending time with your staff. Uh, we had a bunch of them uh, come out to Hong Kong, um, even uh, Pastor Marcus, and he spent a few days with us. And uh, really amazing. We actually had uh, one of your uh, staff actually live in our house for a while. And uh, uh, with my wife and I and our, our four kids and had a great time. Myung-Wa was with, how, how long was she at our home? She was there for a long time, man. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I remember. Three weeks? Oh, it seemed longer than that. It was only three weeks. <laughs> and things. And, and yeah, we had a great time with your staff. I actually, I, I, mean, I, have, I have great admiration for your staff. Um, I mean, just, just the hard work and the heart and everything. But I will say there was a moment at our retreat that I kind of lost a lot of respect uh, for your staff. I mean, like, a lot of respect. And it was when we played basketball. And, uh, man, so these guys were talking smack, you know, about basketball. And, and I, I played basketball. And so I grew up playing my whole – I actually still play right now. And, uh, um, you know, playing in college and, and, you know, the whole deal. And, uh, and so we, we had a game. The first game we won, our SP guy. It was, it was SP pastors against New Philly pastors. And the first game we won 21 to 2. You guys scored one pathetic basket. Two because we, we went by twos and threes. And in the second game, they lost 21 to nothing. Ah. <sighs> JP and David and 
And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can really respect you guys uh, as much <laughs> after that. But it was, it was better. The third game, I think they scored 18 points. But I didn't play that game. So, so it was 18. It was a good thing because our staff, our pastors, they were sweating because I think the game was tied for a bit. And our guys were sweating because if they lost that game, I would, I would like make fun of them for the rest of their life. But they were able to pull it off at the end. And so it was, it was really good. But yeah, we really enjoyed. You guys, can, can we just give the Lord a clap? You guys have an awesome staff. And it's really, really blessed. And I'll introduce the, the rest of our team uh, throughout our time. And so I, I hope that um, God can really speak to us uh, uh, during this time and in this season of your life. I don't take uh, this retreat or what's going on uh, very lightly. And, uh, but, we're, I mean, but at the same time, very, very excited. Okay? All right. Let me, let me start off and just ask you a simple question. I want everyone to close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I just want you to think about God. Go ahead. Just think about God. What do you see? God. All right, why don't you open your eyes? What did you guys see? Just say something. Father holding a child. Oh, wow. That's good, man. Jennifer, wow. How about anyone else? What did, God, what did you see? You guys are college students, right? You guys are supposed to be like smart, so. What did you see? Come on, man. <laughs> you guys are worse than my church, man. Right? What did you see? Just to throw something out. What did you see? Come on. Smiling. Okay, what else? Open arms. Anything else? Hugging the God of the galaxy. Peace. Pastor Daniel, what did you see, man? Give me something profound. (laughs) Clouds. That wasn't really profound, but... (laughs) Clouds. Well, those were all... Pretty good answers. Um, they're decent. Um, you, want, you want the A answer? It's Jesus. When you think of God, anyone get Jesus? You should think of Jesus. Oh, Sam and Lisa, you guys have the best names in this whole place, and you guys didn't even say it out loud. My wife's name is also Lisa, so we have a lot in common there. It's Jesus. And... Jesus says that the, the Bible tells in class that he is the exact representation of his nature. When Jesus, when people asked and came to the Lord, his disciples, and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact representation of our Father God. And so even in, in John, in John it says, if you know the book, it says, is in the beginning was the Word. The Word, uh, W-O-R-D, particularly in John, in Greek is the word logos. Logos is actually translated, it's very simple, it just means divine intelligence. But the key of logos, that's a little different, it means divine intelligence that that could be understood in human terms. That's what Jesus is. In other words, people were so confused about God, 
So God sent the word, sent himself down. And he's not just intelligence. He's not just divine intelligence, but he's actually intelligence that we can understand. John Calvin in his institutes, he wrote, uh, 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 wrote a lot of areas of doctrine. One area of doctrine, he called it, and there's a lot of different terms, but the, the simple uh, uh, late term is accommodation. It's the doctrine of accommodation. In other words, God is unknowable. God is so far removed from who we are, but he accommodates us by revealing himself to us in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's who God is. It's like if you're, like you're, you have professors at school... Now, a lot of your professors are stinking smart. You know what I mean? But they can't teach a lick. They're like PhDs. All, they're so smart. But when you're in the class, you're so confused. It's because they have intelligence, but not in a way that we can understand. Jesus is divine intelligence, but in a way that we can understand. He accommodates us. And so, so today, uh, and trust me, the messages. Through this weekend are going to be really simple. I mean, really, really simple. I, I really, I feel really felt God just asked me to not not to dumb it down. And I, I don't, you know, I'm I'm not saying you guys are dumb. So I need to, you know, make it elementary, but to make it so simple because really this is a fresh start uh, for all of us here. And so uh, today, the time my message is called Jesus. Turn to your neighbor, say, "Hey, good looking, Jesus." Go ahead. So Martin Luther, Martin Luther has uh, uh, this uh, really incredible quote that really ministered to me years ago. And it says, most people have just enough of religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy the life in the spirit. He says, most Christians have just enough of religion, just enough of God, just enough of faith that they just feel guilty. They just, their whole life, that the, the every moment of their existence, they just feel like they're not good enough. They're not cutting it, that, that God's not pleased with me. He's disappointed in me. And he says, but that, not enough to enjoy the life in the spirit. And I hope this weekend we're going to talk about what it means to walk in this life of the spirit. And it starts with Jesus. So let me ask you another question. It is real simple, and, and, and I, I had this posited to me years ago, and, and I still reflect on it at times. But this real simple question is, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Like, we're all in this place. So what, what does it mean to, to have spirituality? Or, but, but what does it mean just to simply be spiritual? I, I, when, when I, was a, um, I went to a Christian university, and during that time, I decided to take a religion class at, at a community college, it was actually the Bible as literature because I wanted to, I wanted to kind of understand um, what uh, um, you know what what people in academic circles were thinking about the Bible and these things. I was just curious. So I had some time, so I enrolled in the school and I took this class. And it was an older lady. She was actually a fabulously wealthy woman. You know, she was like a Newport Beach socialite, uh, and so she taught the class for fun. And so she started off by saying, I'm not a Christian, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, you know, I, I, don't, I don't adhere to any organized religion, but she said, I'm spiritual. And that started the quest of what it means to be spiritual. And that's what she meant, she said, I'm spiritual. So what does it mean to be spiritual? Let me, let me actually break it down a little bit more. As a Christian, how many chapters of the Bible do you need to read every day to be considered spiritual? Do you need to read 10? 
is five chapters, does that cut it? How about one? How about if you just read one, one chapter a day? If you read one chapter a day, does that mean you're spiritual? How about if you just do one verse? Like, like we, we have these apps now, right, where they send you one verse. Can you just read one verse a day and be considered spiritual? It, it, I mean, is that how it works? How, how, many, uh, how many church services do you need to go to every week to be considered spiritual? How many? We, we, have, we have morning prayer at our church, uh, actually every morning, uh, Monday through Saturday. And, uh, and then we have three services on Sunday. And so if I'm, if I'm considered spiritual, do I need to go to all of them? Surely, if I went to all the services, I'm pretty stinking spiritual. Right? So, so what, is, what does it mean? Uh, uh, um, uh, how long do you have to pray? Uh, you, you know, there's an old hymn, the sweet hour of prayer. Does that mean if I pray for one hour a day, does that mean I'm spiritual? What if I can only do five minutes? It, it, actually, what if I just do two minutes a day? If I do two minutes a day, is that enough for me to be spiritual? Or surely, okay, fasting. Surely, if I'm fasting, that means that, that has to be the pinnacle of spirituality. So, so how, how, how about if I do a 40-day water fast like Jesus, does that mean I'm spiritual? What if I just miss one meal? Can I just miss one meal? And is that, is that spiritual enough? Or, 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 or do I need to go into ministry? Like, like, do I need to be a pastor? Surely, if I'm like Pastor Sam, I'm the th- th- third person right now. That's me, right? Surely, that's spirituality. Like, like, how many mission trips do you have to go on to be spiritual? How many leadership positions do you need to be a part of to be spiritual? Surely, if you're like David and you're sitting up in the stage and playing the guitar, surely, oh my goodness, because he looked really spiritual, you know? That, that, that has to be the height of spirituality. Do, do, do you see how confusing this gets? I mean, what does it really, really mean to be spiritual? How does this really, really work? You know the answer? I'll tell you, this is the easiest. It's Jesus again. You know what it means to be spiritual? You look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I'll give you, I'll give you a really, really easy, easy uh, tip. Whatever the question, Jesus is always the answer. Any pastor ever asks you a question, just say Jesus. That's always the right answer. Turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's our text for today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just going to read one verse, verse 3. And this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he's, he's, he's lamenting the fact that the Corinthians had kind of lost their way. And in 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is what he says. He says, But I'm afraid, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Don't you love that? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That is the height of spirituality. That's what I'm praying for this weekend. That we would go back to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We've made church too complicated. We've made faith too complicated. we made our lives too complicated. We need to go back to what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. The simplicity and purity of devotion 
to Christ. And can we pray right now? Lord, we thank you, God. Lord, we ask you to, to lead us, Lord, as a, a body right here to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so, Lord, to that end right now, we ask you to release the revelatory ministry of the Holy Spirit in this room. Lord, give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive what the Spirit is saying to each one of us individually and corporately as a body. And, Lord, I humble myself today. I ask that you use me to preach a prophetic word with power and authority. Heavenly Lord, not just to convey your words, God, but to convey your heart. God, we thank you, Lord. We love you in this place, God. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. This, uh, I want to tell you, this message has been really a, a journey of mine for years. And, and when, I, when, I, when I turned 30 years old, I'm much older than that now. But when I turned 30 years old, I was pastoring. And I had just kind of uh, transitioned into a new role. I was, you know, at my uni. Uh, I went back to my university, and they asked me to become the campus pastor. And so I was, I was going through this, through this transition, and I realized, you know, you know, Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. And so I, I felt this just gnawing pressure that when I got to 30, like something significant needs to happen through me. And I, and I, I had this idea that I got three years to make an impact. Because Jesus ministered for three years. And so this is going to be like the, the, I mean, 30 is big. This is a big thing that's happening right now. And then what happened is, is I started getting, just moving close into my 30s. I came to this deep realization that I really didn't like myself. I didn't like who I had become. I didn't like my, my leadership. I, I, I really struggled um, because I, I, I came to faith pretty radically. Um, I was a, a basically a junior in university, and, and I came to faith, and my life just turned upside down overnight. I was just a radical transformation, and so and and where faith was raw and young, and you know evangelism and all these things, and then I got involved in ministry, and and I, I was doing ministry. I should say I got involved in vocational ministry, and then I became like a slave driver. I became mean. Uh, 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 I, I was uh, uh, demanding, and and so when when I reached thirty, I look back at at, at uh, looking at Jesus's life, and I'm reinvestigating. I'm looking at Jesus's life, and I'm looking at my life, and it's like night and day. And I, I see Jesus is so full of life and and wonder, and he's so kind, and and I'm not, and and it started really really bothering me. And, and so I, 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 you know, I went and started reading books, uh, uh, Philip Yancey's book, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. It was, it was really helpful. I started, I started reading a lot of different things. And, and I began to realize I was, I was kind of going through this, like, midlife crisis in, in a certain way, I guess, pre-midlife crisis. And, and I realized that in ministry, the whole time what I was doing, I was putting yokes on people. And I see Jesus, all he did was take yokes off people. And, and and so I knew something needed to change in this place. Uh, I, I I actually um, my so so I grew up like I said I grew up playing basketball. My my friends and I would would play in this park pretty close to my house. My mom would drive home on the way, and she because because we if we didn't you know if we didn't get any warning we would actually play all night long. And she used to honk the horn, and then you know we used to run home and we'd have dinner. But, you know, like most guys, you know, I would come in, you know, no shirt, sweaty, and, and my hands all black from playing basketball. And I would just go straight to the dinner table. 
My mom would say, go wash your hands, which is good personal hygiene. Like stuff you need to do. But you know how to realize that Jesus doesn't do that. That Jesus invites us to dinner and he says, you don't have to wash up. He says, while we eat, I'll wash you up. It's totally different. And, and, and I begin to recognize that the Jesus that, that, that I had been formulating in my mind because of ministry, because I was doing the works, was very different than the Jesus in the Bible. And, and so again, I was putting yokes on people. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty? 20? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And he says in this place, and he says, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, but burn is light. And he says, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I looked at the scriptures. You know, there's actually only two times that Jesus in the New Testament, actually one of these times, that actually talked about his personality. You know, other times he says, I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, all those kinds of things, which was more spiritual uh, kind of analogies. But this first time he says he chose actually adjectives that, that describe his personality. And what did he say? He said, I'm gentle and I'm humble. Isn't that amazing? I'm gentle and I'm humble. But again, most Christians live their life thinking that God is disappointed in them. Again, most Christians know, have just enough of religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to have a life in the Spirit. And I begin to realize that Jesus and I, we just think really differently. You know, Isaiah 55 says, My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than yours. I mean, we read that passage and most of I mean, this is why I interpret that passage. My ways are higher than your ways. Yeah, yeah. Like me and you, God, we're like that. Everyone else, yeah, they're low, you know. It's like they don't quite get it. But me and you, you, you know, we're, we're like, we're connected. But he says, my ways are hard. In other words, if you have a thought, God has the opposite thought. That's basically what this passage is telling us. And so we begin to realize that Jesus actually thinks so differently than I do. And probably you do as well. I'll give you some, let me, okay, let me let, me, let, me let the Bible speak, okay. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 is, is really this incredible passage. And, and if, you, if you just run through the text, in John 6, he feeds 5,000. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, that's, that's fairly impressive, right? Out of just a few uh, pieces of bread. And then... He tops it off by walking on water. I mean, that's like, you know, like the feeding people miraculously wasn't enough. The next thing you know, he walks on water. Then he goes and he starts doing this teaching. And let's just pick this up. He says in verse, let's start at verse 26. It's John six twenty six, And he says, he answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And they said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? These guys were just like us. See, every single one of us, I guarantee you, every single one of us, we came to Jesus Christ because we had a need. We were lonely, we were lost. 
So, something was going on in our life. We were in turmoil. And so we had a need. And so we came to Jesus. We, we didn't come independently because we had a, 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 a faith a, a movement in our mind. No, we came because we wanted something. We needed something. And that's what these guys are going through. And so he says, you didn't come here, right, because of an act of faith. You came because I fed you. In other words, I gave you something that you needed. And so he says here, and he's, now he's, he's teaching, he says, look, don't work for food that is so temporary, Work for something that's so much bigger. And so the people ask this question. I'm I'm sure many of us, probably a lot of you guys in college, you're asking this question now. God, what do you want me to do? Anyone asking that question? Okay, okay. Trust me, this goes a lot quicker if you are responsive. Because if you're not responsive, it kind of means that you're not getting it. So I have to explain it again in a different way. Right? And so, you guys feeling me? Right? So, if you respond, okay, good. So, that's, that's basically what he says there. He's, he says, don't work for food that perishes. Work for food that lasts. And then, so the guys ask, well, what should we do then? This, this, this simple, simple question. Let me get through this again. He says, they said therefore in 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Did you, did you just catch that? That's, that's deep right there. I mean, that's as deep as it gets. Think about this. Again, they ask, Lord, what do you want us to do? And how does Jesus respond? He says, the work I have for you to do is to believe. Jesus, Jesus, I already believe. (laughs) I believe already. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do, man. The work I have for you to do is to believe. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) You're not really understanding what I'm saying. You don't understand how people make fun of me because I believe. Like some people actually are persecuting me because I believe. Jesus, I believe. The virgin birth, resurrection, all that stuff, man. I believe all that. Tell me what to do. And he says, the work I have for you to do is to believe. So he thinks differently than we do. You know why he says that? He's basically saying, because you really don't believe. You really don't believe. You only talk believing. Because check this out. Because if you really believed, the work would take care of itself. Think about that for a moment. If you really believed, the work would take care of itself. We're so involved in doing. But how many know we are human beings and not human doings? And we ask God, we're always saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he's saying, what I want you to do is to believe. See, if we really, really believed, the work would take care of itself. Let me, now, sometimes when I say things, stuff like that, uh, people don't get it. So I always quote smart people. So here's John Piper. <laughs> so Piper, Piper says it this way. This is in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. This is actually not even in the book. It's in the foreword of the book. That's how good the book is. 
This is what he says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Did you catch that? He says missions, like we have missions programs. Nothing wrong with missions programs. But the reason why we have to do that is because worship is not happening. And Piper, what he's basically saying is what Jesus said. He says basically if you truly believed, missions would happen on its own. Like honestly, like you guys are college students here, right? I I noticed you guys are quite young. If you really believed, you wouldn't sleep with that guy. Did I just say that? Damn straight, I just said that. Man, I'm serious. You're, you're fake believing. I, honestly, you're fake believing. You talk believing, but you're not really believing. You, you know what I mean? It, that's, that's the problem. That, that, that's what Jesus is dealing with. He says, you're worried about all this stuff, but you don't really believe. Because if you really believed, the work would take care, take care of itself. If you really believed Jesus, you would tell all your friends about him. You wouldn't have to have evangelism classes if we really believed. See, the problem is we don't really believe. We talk believing. We're like, we're fake. Well, let's just be honest for a moment here and say we're kind of a little fake. You know, I mean, we try, but, but Jesus, see, he thinks so differently than we do. The, the, the way he goes about living life is so different than the way we go about living life. It, it, it's, it, it's, 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 I mean... You have to recognize Jesus, he says some very, very troubling things. Very troubling things. You know, I, I spent a whole year just about teaching this, go through the Sermon on the Mount in our church. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if someone c- comes and slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them other also. Have you ever, ever seen that happen in church? Like, honestly. Now, I mean, if people are slapping you, you need to find new friends, right? And so it's a little different. But you know, actually, that pastor is saying, let me, JP, come over here for a second. Let me use you as my. Right? So just stand right there, man. No, no, face me, face me. So look what the Bible says. And very specific, he says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Where's your right cheek? Right cheek, right? So, man, this, this, is, this, is, this is pretty profound as well. Think about it. You know, a, a Jewish person would actually never use their left hand to strike anybody. They'd all use their right hand. So if I slap him on the right cheek, what am I doing? I'm giving him backhand. I want to be nice to you. <laughs> you can sit down. Thanks, GP. Right? Now, think about this. Now, I mean, think about what, what Jesus is saying now. So whoever slaps you on your right cheek, he's not talking about an act of violence, is he? I don't think so. He's talking about being disrespected. And then, and I mean, we may not have been slapped in the face. Again, if you've been, you get slapped a lot, you need to, like, do something else. But how many times have, uh, have we been disrespected? You know, the little, like, ah. Uh, like uh, in, in Hong Kong, our, our church is right in the middle of the city, right in central. And so it's a pretty big area. It's, it's a, like very, very uber wealthy and things. And, and so, you know, I walk around because I, I walk around a lot. I, you know, I take the bus and, and uh, I'm, go to church. And sometimes I'll go in and, you know, like it's a little simple. I've got some time to kill before appointments, window shopping. 
And, and I'll, I'll dress, actually, I'm kind of dressed kind of nice today. Um, but usually, you know, you're just in a T-shirt uh, around Hong Kong because it's so stinking hot. And uh, uh, I walk in, and it's amazing, you know, the, the people look at you, like kind of look you up and down, like, you ain't spending no money here, which is actually true. <laughs> but you should still treat me with respect. <laughs> and they give you attitude. And someone gives you, you know, when someone gives you attitude, you're like, Rrr. it's like, do you know who I am? <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell all my church members not to shop here. No, that's pretty stupid if I ever said that. But it's, it's we so we get disrespected all the time. And he says, turn the other cheek. He, he says some very, very troubling things to us. All these things. And so, but this is what really got me thinking. It's actually a, a quote by Dallas Willard. He actually just passed away recently. And uh, uh, he's a, um, a philosophy professor at University of Southern California. Uh, incredible, incredible uh, Christian thinker, philosopher, writer. And in his book, this is, this, is, uh, this is what he says. He says, anyone can believe in Jesus. The challenge is to believe like him. He says, anyone can believe in Jesus. It doesn't take anything to believe in Jesus. The challenge is to believe like him. Turn to your other neighbor Say, hey, good looking. Just say the challenge is to believe like him. Go ahead. See, if you want to walk with the Lord, you need to first off recognize that you and Jesus are very different and that you and Jesus actually think very differently as well. And until you come to that point, you will not be, you will not be able to abide because you, you won't really understand what he's trying to do in our lives. He, he's so different. Think about this. The first miracle that Jesus does is John chapter 2. He gets people drunk. <sighs> now, you college students, don't do that. Right? Because, you know, drunkenness is a sin. You, you, don't, want, you don't want to do that. Especially, I know that Korean is such a huge drinking culture and things. And, and so, it's, it's, this is really important. And, and, and so we understand, think about it, Jesus, even his economics are different than ours. I, okay, let's go to the scripture. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Let me show you something. Mark chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 11. So the 4,000 get fed, okay? So Mark chapter 8. Pick it up from verse 11. He says, And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. <sighs> and sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign should be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a heart and heart? Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, and you do not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you pick up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I brought the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, seven. 
And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Do you get it? Actually, when I first read it, I didn't understand either. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm totally lost right now, Lord. You got you to gotta explain this to me. Think about this. So here's Jesus feeds 4,000 people supernaturally. I mean, actually, if you actually read and understand, it's actually probably double that because they didn't count women and children. So most likely, he probably, it was probably 8,000 people. So, I mean, it's even a greater miracle. So, feeds these people supernaturally. Uh, the Pharisees come, and they start testing him. So he's like, oh, I don't want to deal with these guys. So they get on the boat. Remember, they're on the land. They get on the boat, and they go to the other side of the lake. And so as they're going to the other side, the, and Jesus, the greatest teacher ever in history, starts teaching, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees there. And the disciples, this is, this is good news for us, man, because the disciples were a bunch of idiots, right? And so think about this. The greatest teacher on earth he starts, he starts teaching, just starts going off. And then the guys in the boat were like, hey, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> hey, John, you bring some bread, man? You know, Peter, did you save some bread? And then they, they realize they only have one piece of bread in the whole boat. And, and the Bible says they're arguing with each other. In other words, they're saying, Peter, you idiot, man. You had like 10 baskets. Why don't you bring some more bread? Oh, Philip, you should have. I mean, they're arguing with each other while Jesus is saying, he's teaching, beware the leaven of, of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod. And they're conversing and discussing, arguing the fact they have only one piece of bread. And Jesus goes, you idiots. <laughs> What's wrong with you? He says, don't you get it? Don't you see? And he starts doing math. Let me see how smart you guys are. Do you guys get it? Look, look what he says. He says, don't you understand? He goes, directly. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broke, broken pieces you picked up? And they said, 12. And then, he says then, and then when I broke the seven, for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, seven. You guys get it? All right, you guys are really slow. All right. <laughs> Let me break it. I'll break it down to you a little bit more. Check this out. Jesus took seven loaves, fed 4,000 people, and he had seven baskets left over. So keep that in your mind. Seven loaves. Fed 4,000, seven baskets left over. Then he had five loaves, two loaves less. Fed 5,000, 1,000 more, and had 12 baskets left over. Do you get it? <laughs> Look. Two... He started with two loaves less, fed a thousand people more, and he had five baskets left over. When those guys only had one piece of bread, you know what Jesus was saying? He's saying, do you have any idea what I could do with one piece of bread? See, in Jesus' economy, he takes less, feeds more, and he has more left over. In our economy, we need lots to do very little. Right? Jesus needs less to do more. And he has more left over. 
What he was trying to tell these guys is, do you have any idea the miracles I could do with just one piece of bread? The God that takes less, does more, and has more left over. That's powerful. And see, there's a lot of people that are sitting in churches all over the world. And they're saying, Lord, I'm not much. I don't have much. I'm just one piece of bread. I don't, I'm not that talented. I'm not that gifted. I want to tell you, heaven stands up and applauds. That's exactly what they're looking for. Exactly what they're looking for. You know, honestly, I can tell that story because that was my life. I, 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 this, is, this is just straight honest. I, I thought I had nothing to offer the Lord. I mean, most people like the sound of my voice. They, they, they think my, my voice sounds quite nice. And so they expect me to be a great singer. <laughs> I'm horrible, man. People make fun of me, especially people like that. Make fun of me all the time, my singing, because I'm tone deaf. And, and so I can't dance. You know, I'm actually kind of rigid. And, uh, um, but I can play sports. I had one piece, one piece of bread. I said... <laughs> Honestly, honestly, I said, God, I can't really do anything, you know, I can't, because, you know, like at church, they're all like doing music stuff or, you know, and speaking, oh my goodness, dude, I could not speak. I took speech class in college. Oh, it was so bad. It was painful. It was so painful. I, w- I would literally, I would get heartburn. Like if, if uh, the, before the speech, after the speech in, in my speech class, I would go in and I, and my friends would know because I'd be walking like this the whole day. They're like, oh, you got a speech today, huh? Oh yeah, I got speech, man. It was so bad. The first time I ever actually gave a testimony, it was actually in my chapel in school. And, uh, you know, so I went up, and I, of course, I was wearing shorts, right? I mean, Southern California. And my knees were, like, hitting each other the whole time. I was sweating like crazy. It was, it was, it was, it was ugly. And I thought, God, I, I really I don't have much to offer, but I can dribble a ball. I can put it through a hoop. I can jump high. I can play volleyball. I, mean, I can play tennis. I, 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 anything with a ball, I'm actually pretty proficient at. And so, you know, I was like, this, this is what I can offer, just one piece of bread. And God used it. And that started a lot of other things that came out after it. It's amazing. You know, most of us, we think that we're unusable, but it's actually the exact opposite. We're just, can you imagine what he can do with just one piece of bread? And it says that you can never be too small for God to use you, only too big. And it's something that we should really, really keep to heart. So he, he just thinks very differently than we do. Just so differently. And so even, again, going through these economics thing that we talked about here in Mark 8. You know, most of us, we, call, we cry out to God, say, Lord, I need all these resources. I need all these things. And he says, just give me one or two. Think about this. The story that, that the Christians have used for, for millennia to raise money for the kingdom of God is a story of this old woman that came up and brought two little copper mites. You know, the, the mite, it was actually it was like, like a feather. You know, everyone else, when they dropped coin, it made loud, loud noise. The mite was, was the smallest uh, denominator, the smallest currency. It was like a feather. It had no weight. It made no sound whatsoever. It's, it's kind of embarrassing, really. That story is used all over the world. Just, just one piece of bread. See, he thinks so differently than we do. It's it, it, it just so different. And so it's imperative 
for us to begin to understand these differences in how that operates. It's real simple. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, I know no one reads the Encyclopedia anymore, uh, but says that Jesus is the founder of the Christian church or a Christian movement. I want to tell you that's not true. That's not true. Jesus did not come to found any kind of movement. He came to be with us. He's Emmanuel, God, with us. I, I'm personally, I'm so uh, enraptured by that name. I named my daughter, my second daughter, uh, her name is Emmanuel. And uh, we, we call her Emma. But because of that simple idea that God, he didn't come to found some organization. He came to be with us. He is Emmanuel. And so he didn't come to, to set up a religious system. He came to be with us. He came to love us, and he came to redeem us. So, in light of Dallard Willard's quote, Dallas Willard quote, anyone can believe in Jesus. The challenge is to believe like him. So, I simply ask this question. What does Jesus believe about you and me? What does Jesus believe about you and me? Before that, let me just give you this simple. See, the gospel is really simple. This is how it works. Jesus says, I'll leave my place. That's called the incarnation. I'll come to your place. That's sanctification. I'll take you to my, I'll, I'll take your place. That's justification, crucifixion. And he says, then I'll take you to my place. That's resurrection, glorification. The gospel is so simple. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then I'll take you to my place. That's this Christian life that we live in. But that was, a, that was a freebie, all right? So what does Jesus believe about you and me? I have five points, but I'm probably going to only do two, okay? Number one, number one, Jesus believes that we are worth something. Jesus believes that we are worth something. Unworthy, true, totally unworthy, but we're not worthless. Unworthy, but not worthless. How do I know that? Actually, I actually have two points here. <laughs> Number one, I know that because we're made in his image. Every single one of us made in the image of God. Let me, I'll show you this. Turn to Matthew 22. Let me give you another one. Matthew chapter 22 now, he's being tested here. Matthew 22, we'll start here at verse 15. He says, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Again, when I first read it, I marveled as well. I had no idea what just happened here. So, I mean, check this out. The Pharisees bring along the Herodians. If you understand, the Herodians were the enemies of the Pharisees. 
I mean, these were bitter, bitter enemies. And so, but they come together to trap him. And then they're, they're, they're basically talking about taxation. Um, you know, there, there's the zealots that, that want uh, uh, the Israel to fight against the Roman, their, their rule, unjust rule. And then you got other ones like the Herodians that, that really acquiesce to whatever Rome has to say. These guys are at odds with each other. And so they come to this place and says, is it lawful for us to pay the poll, ta- uh, poll tax or not? Because if, you know, if they say yes, you know, then thinking that Jesus would lose faith with the Israelites, if they said no, then he would be in trouble by the Romans. And so you can see this is a pretty huge dilemma that, that Jesus is. I mean, he's stuck right now. And so what does he say? He says, give me a coin. Actually, you guys have a coin? You guys have, a, anyone have an American coin here? I know this is tough. Because I know your Korean coins won't quite work, right? Well, anyone have any kind of coin? What is that? A quarter? Oh, what's up, man? It's perfect. So, actually, the, the poll tax, the Daenerys, was kind of like this. It had the image of Herod on it. And so, uh, uh, you know, Caesar at that time, or not, I'm also not here, Caesar. And so, and he says, simply says, give me, the, give me a coin. So they show him a coin. It had, had the headshot of, of Caesar. And he turns. Remember what he says? And he says, then give to Caesar. He probably, hey, bro, I'm going to pass it back to you. Hope you can catch. He said, they give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Oh, what's up? <laughs> right? Check this out. Then give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. And look at everyone and says, give to God the things that are God's. In other words, the only thing that Caesar can put his inscription on is a coin. <laughs> Big deal. whoop de doo But God is his, put his inscription on every single one of us. I want to tell you, this is exactly what Jesus did. He gave the coin. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he looked at every one of these Pharisees. But you give to God. The things that are God's. And they walked away thinking, all right, don't mess with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, honestly, they're like, they walk, don't mess with Jesus. Again, the only thing that Caesar puts his inscription on is a coin. Big deal. Big deal. Only God has put his inscription on every single one of us. That's why we know that we're special. That's what he says. He believes we are worth something. Why? Because we're made in his image. The cross reference is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Male and female, he created us in the image of God. The only thing Caesar can do is put his image on a coin. But every human being bears the image of God. That's why we're special. I mean, you think about even, even the angels. Remember the angels fell? And the Bible tells us one-third of the angels fell. By the way, that, that should give us a lot of confidence as we're living this Christian life. Because one-third of them fell. Do the math. You know what I mean? That means God still has two-thirds of heaven that are fighting in our behalf. I don't know why we're so scared of the enemy. I, I just, it just boggles my mind. We give him way too much credit. And so, because one-third, but check out that one-third... They don't get to be redeemed. You know, you know why the devil hates us? I, 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 let me just give you a little insight. Actually, he cares nothing about you. He doesn't he care about you at all. Noth, nothing at all. 
but the, the deep, deep root is jealousy. You know why? We are, the only, we are the only beings created in God's image. We're the only beings that get to be redeemed. And we're the only beings that get to procreate other beings in the image of God. That's crazy. I mean, that is crazy. I did it four times. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's awesome. I did it. By the way, you need to have four kids. If you don't, you're not biblical if you don't have four kids. Because the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. So two is addition. That ain't no multiplication, right? You guys feeling me? Oh, yeah, now you get it, right? In our quest to be biblical, three doesn't quite cut it. Actually, when I said three, I said three is enough. But when I said four, now I'm really biblical. And so, right, be fruitful and multiply. And so we're meant to multiply. But I did four, I get to procreate other beings in the image of God. I get, I get to be redeemed. Like I can mess up over and over again, and I get to be redeemed. And I'm all the only one creating the image of God. The enemy hates that about us. But the, the real reason why he really goes after us is because we're the only ones that can hurt God. The devil can't hurt God. We're the only ones that can actually hurt God. Remember when, because of the sin, and in Genesis, the Bible says that it grieved God in his heart. It actually made him sad that he had made man. For whatever reason, I don't know how that works, but God has put in us the ability to either give God joy or give him sadness. The devil can't do that. See, the devil wants to hurt God. The devil wants to hurt him bad, but he can't do it. But he can do it through us. <laughs> do, you, do you understand? You know, when Paul says in Corinthians, says, we are not ignorant of his schemes, that's his major scheme. He wants to use you to hurt God. And when we walk in disobedience, right, when, when, when we, you know, are self-centered, when we care about ourselves only and all these things, that's, we, that hurts God. It grieves him. It grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes off. And so we're made in his image. That's how we know that believers are worth something. I'll give you another one. Why? Because he pays a price for me. He pays a price for me. Let me give you an economics lesson. Any econ majors here? No econ major? Oh, one econ major? That's from my church. That doesn't count. Any accounting major, business majors here? Okay, good. I studied business too. I actually was an entrepreneur for a bit before I became a pastor. And so this is, this, is, this is simple economics, right? The value of an object is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. You get it? Simple. The value of an object is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. When, when, I, when I moved, my wife and I, we got married in March 2002. Uh, we came to Hong Kong in uh, July of 2002 on a survey trip. The Lord spoke to my wife. I mean, God had already spoken to me, but I need to give space for my wife to hear from the Lord. And so uh, the Lord spoke to my wife. I moved in November. My wife moved in December. We actually were two of us. We just got married, and, and then we started the church in February of 2003. So it happened really fast. And so, um, but, but I, 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 we actually had three cars during that time. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, someone gave us a car. So we ended up giving that car to our church. I sold my truck, and, and I, had, I had my, this is my baby. I actually called it my, it was nicknamed Black Beauty. And I had a, 
I had a Toyota 4Runner. I don't know if you guys know, an SUV. I, you know, I was a four-wheel drive kind of guy. And I love, I love my truck, man. I took good care of my truck. At that time, my truck had over 300,000 miles on it. And so, you know, I took good care of my truck. And Toyotas are amazing, by the way. And so, um, and so I, went to, I went to this website, kellybluebook.com. If you guys ever sell and buy used cars, you guys know the kbb.com now. And so, to me, my truck is, like, worth millions. I mean, it's actually, to be honest, my truck is priceless to me. But I went to kbb.com. You know how much my truck was worth? $4,000. I was devastated. What? Black Beauty is worth so much more than that. But, but the, again, what I just read to you just now, the value of an object is determined by, by the price someone is willing to pay for it. The buyer, not the seller, ultimately determines price. And so it says... Jesus Christ went to the cross to set the price on us so high that he could never be outbid. Jesus Christ went to the cross, set the price on us so high that he could never be outbid. How do we know that we are worth something? Not only because we're made in his image, but he pays a price for me. He pays a huge price for me. This is way before your time, okay? But there's this movie, um, I, I think it was in the 80s, and it's called The Last Emperor. Everyone watched The Last Emperor, Bernardo Bertolucci, right? Academy Award. It's basically about the last emperor of China and under Japanese occupation. And, and he, he lives this, like, really uh, uh, magical life of, of servants and uh, of luxury, thousands, eunuchs to his side and, and, and all these things. Um, and then, uh, but, but he was like hand chosen uh, by the dowager to be this, the last emperor. And so he lives in, in uh, uh, um, the palace and, and, and all these things happen. And so his brother comes to him one day in the movie and he asks, he just simply says, well, you know, older brother says, well, what happens to you when you do wrong? What happens to you when you do wrong? And this is what the, the little boy emperor said. When I do wrong, someone else is punished. And in the movie, he, he breaks a jar, and then the servant, you know, falls down, and he gets whipped. And so, uh, this to, to, to express exactly what happens here. See, in Christianity, Jesus Christ, because he's so different, he reverses his ancient pattern. Check this out. In the world, when the king sins, the servants get punished. In Christ, when the servants sin, the king gets punished. So different. So different. In the world, when the king sins, the servants get punished. But in Christ, when the servants sin, that's me and you, the king gets punished. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't move our heart to gratitude, if that doesn't move our heart to worship him, something's, something's really, really wrong inside of us. He believes that we're worth something. Anyone can believe in Jesus. The challenge is to believe like him. So what does he believe about you and me? 
He believes you are worth something. There's something very special about you, who you are, because he made you in his image, and he pays a price for you. Let me ask you this question. How will we live our lives if we believed what Jesus believes about us? How different would your lives be if you believed about yourself what Jesus believes about you? How many, how many sociology majors here? What are you guys studying? <laughs> you guys just studying like K-pop or something? I mean, what's, what's going on here in Korea? So... Sociologists, if some of you guys majors, you would not recognize this. It's, the, it's a theory. It's called the looking glass self. You guys memorize this? Remember? The looking glass self. This is what it says. The, it's, it's a, this is a, a sociological theory. The looking glass self says you become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. And that, it's, it's, it, this, is, this is true. You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. Either that could be your wife, your father, or your boss, or your pastor. But you, you, this is a looking glass that you become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. Now, I'm a little embarrassed by this, okay? But early on when we first moved to Hong Kong, there wasn't a lot of English programming in, you know, on television. And so my wife and I, every once in a while, we used to watch this show, the first season. After that, we didn't watch it anymore. But just a little bit. We thought it was intriguing. And it was uh, uh, this uh, um, um, American model, uh, Tyra Banks. And she had this show called America's Next Top Model. Again, very embarrassing, but, you know, I'm preaching, you know, so I got to be real. And so my wife and I would watch this show, and it was crazy. Because, like, here's these young ladies, very, very attractive. And, like, like rails. Like, so skinny. And but they would sit there and they'd be like, I'm so fat, you know, and, 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 and I'm so ugly and, and all these things. And, you know, do you remember there was like that phone booth or that thing where they can call like their boyfriend? They're always crying all the time and things like that. And you realize that their boyfriends told them they were fat. So even though they weighed like 40 pounds, they thought they were fat. Their dad basically told them that you would not amount to anything and that you're ugly. And she could be, uh, she was a gorgeous knockout, but she'll feel ugly her whole life. That's a sociological phenomenon. It's called the looking glass self. It's a theory. It's true. You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. If you grew up and your dad, if he called you a bum, and he said you'll never amount to anything, your whole life you're going to work to try to prove your dad wrong. But even when you get successful, you're going to feel like a bum. You could be a billionaire and feel like the biggest loser in the world. It's the looking glass. You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. So, check this out. What if we recognize what Jesus thinks about us? And what if we recognize that Jesus loved us, that Jesus was proud of us. How different would we live our lives if we recognize that?
I, I'm, I, I'm standing here as a testimony. I'm, uh, as a testimony. You know, a lot of people say, oh, P. Sam, you always seem so confident. You know, like, like you seem like, you know, like you're a good leader. I, actually, I'm really not. But I know who I am. I know what my Lord thinks about me. And he thinks I'm awesome. I'm serious. So, you know, criticism comes my way. Who are you? You're just a human being. Created from the dust of the ground. You know what I mean? My God, the king of the universe, says that I'm awesome. So I appreciate your comments. But it means nothing to me. That's the truth. I I, I I don't know if you guys knew this, but I want you to know, I am God's favorite son. I am. I'm God's favorite. It's, it's, It's undeniable. It's been proven. Absolute proven. I am God's favorite son, and the reality is every single one of you should actually feel the exact same way. It's the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. Let me tell you a story. There was this little boy, and he was uh, uh, walking to school. And so the mom, you know, usually lets him walk to school. But then as the boy left the house, mom realized there's a huge storm. I mean, thunder, lightning, the whole deal. And so she thought, I need to go get my son. You know, I need to get out there and, and, and take him to school because it's pouring rain. It's like crazy. It's mad out there. And so she gets the route of which where her son would walk to school. And as she was getting close, she noticed her son, some very particular behavior. And so what he would do is he would like, you know, waddle in the, in the puddles, you know, that's what kids do and stuff. And then he says, every time thunder and lightning would happen, he would stop and he would look up and he would smile and he'd wave his hands. And then he'd like, you know, walk around in the mud, you know, a bit. And then all of a sudden thunder and lightning would happen. And he would just stop everything and he'd just look up and smile and wave his hands. And so the mom's thinking, oh, my son's crazy. What, what am I going to do? This is like, you know, I need to find a psychologist. And so what ends up happening is, so she pulls up and says, son, get in the car. I'm going to drive to school. And so she had to ask. She said, son, what were you doing? I saw you every time at thunder and lightning that you stopped and started waving and smiling. And this is what the boy said. He says, oh, that. Ah, that's nothing. He says, God was just taking pictures of me. Right? For some of you guys are a little slow, you know, like flash, right? Okay. (laughs) Now, let me give you the spiritual dynamic of that. How different will we live our life if we were like that boy? It's raining. It's cold. We're getting soaking wet. It's dark and gloomy. And all we hear is thunder and lightning. But we know God loves us. He's just taking a picture of me. You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. See, what we need to do, our discipleship, when we talk about spiritual formation, Our discipleship is getting out of our thinking and start thinking like Jesus. And the first major thing that you need to get in your heart is what he thinks about you. And he loves you. He cares about you. He died for you. He created you in his image. He thinks you're the best thing that ever happened 
in this world. I know most of us grew up with self-hate. There's, there's something about us that we don't like. Did you know that God looks at you and there isn't anything he doesn't like? That God, when he sees you, that he's just so filled with joy. Zechariah tells us that he dances over us. He's so filled with joy when he looks at us. Even when we make mistakes, even when we make mistakes, God does not leave us. You understand what I'm saying? You become what the most important person in your life thinks that you are. Your discipleship is really beginning to recognize, God, what do you believe? What do you think about me? What do you believe about me? What's going on? He believes that you are worth something. Anyone can believe in Jesus. The challenge is to believe like Jesus. Number two, number two, he believes that people are gifts and not threats. He believes that people are gifts and not threats. Any of you guys ever, ever go to a library? Wow, this could very be the dumbest church I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> you know, libraries, there's books in libraries, you know. You know what a book is? <laughs> Okay. Well, I want to tell you, there's another library actually sitting right next to you. Library sitting right next to you. There's a treasure sitting right next to you. He believes that we are gifts to one another and not threats. Did you know that you're not in competition with anybody? Right, let me... Let me say this to, uh, this is, I mean, I, it's a really strong word that I got uh, earlier tonight. Listen, you have nothing to prove. Hmm? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you today. You have nothing to prove to anybody. Because God loves you just the way that you are. You have nothing to prove. Some of us are trying to prove that those voices that happen. That they were wrong. Listen, you got nothing to prove. I, I, I found freedom one day. Um, my church members will tell you, there ain't no one more competitive in my church than me. I'm serious. I like to win at everything. I'm, I'm serious. Everything. I'm, I'm one of those hyper-competitive guys. I'm just, I, love, I love competition. Man, I'm just, I still play. You know, I, I'm going to be 51 in about three weeks. I know I look so young. I know. I know. It's Okay. But I still play. I play, I play, play in the basketball league. I play in the softball league right now still. Because I just love the competition. I'm, I'm still trying. You know, I, I, just, I just feed off that. But the day that I was set free is because the Lord stood in my face and said, Sam, you have nothing to prove. And I, I grew up with this huge chip on my shoulder. I mean, a huge chip. I was trying to prove everybody that I was worthy to be loved. And my avenue was sports. And so, I mean, I, I mean, I work to the bone. In fact, to be honest, my body's falling apart as a result. You know, I, I, spent, I spent, thank God, last year I had no surgeries. I spent five years in a row having major surgery. My Achilles ruptured. I, I have four screws in my shoulders. And I mean, just like one after another because my body's falling apart because of my hyper-competitiveness. But now I just keep that to the pitch. 
you know, or to the court. In life, I got nothing to prove, right? Your church is bigger than mine. Good for you, man. <laughs> Praise God, you know. It's like your wife is prettier than mine. <laughs> Good for you, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, your kids are smarter than mine. Wow. Awesome. It's like, I didn't know this was a competition. You know? I mean, you compete on the court. You know, you compete on the pitch. But I didn't, I didn't know life was this competition. You make more money than me? Whoa, cool. Take me out to dinner, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, let's go get some steaks or something. It's like, but listen, you got nothing to prove. You're not fighting against the person next to you. In fact, the New Testament is really full. If there's actually a theme of, of, of more, more Pauline letters, it really deals with one another's. It's really the gospel of one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. All the one another's that we're supposed to be practicing. He believes that people are gifts and not threats. You don't believe me. Let me read you. This is, this is my favorite theologian. You're going to love this. Let me just read an excerpt. You may be familiar. His name is Dr. Seuss. He's my favorite doctor. What, what would this world be like if you weren't here? See, I know the devil wants you to think that the world is better off without you. You know, like suicide, suicidal tendencies is huge, especially amongst people your age. And the enemy wants you to think that this world will be better without you. It's not true. This world will be vastly different without you. Here, I'll tell you this is the doctor. Here's what he says. He says, if we didn't have birthdays, you wouldn't be you. If you've never been born, well, then what would you do? If you've never been born, well, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. You might be a bag full of hard green tomatoes. Or worse than all that, while you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present. But you, you are you. Now, isn't that pleasant? I actually bought this for my kids, and I took it from them. <laughs> this is so profound. <laughs> so, <laughs> today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. Shout loud, I'm lucky to be what I am. Thank goodness I'm just not a clam or a ham or a dusty old jar of sour gooseberry jam. I am what I am. That's a great thing to be. If I say so myself, happy birthday to me. See, this doctor got it right. I'm telling you, my favorite theologian, he, he, he knows what he's doing here. What would this world be like if you weren't here? You are a gift. You are a gift to this church. You are a gift to this country, even though it may be for a short time. You're a gift to the body of Christ. 
You're a gift in your family. You're a gift to your friends. And let's just get rid of the nonsense about that the world would be better without me. The world is better because you're in it. Because God has a purpose for your life in this world, in your family. He believes that people are gifts and not threats. You want one more or are you guys tired? Okay. That wasn't really that enthusiastic, but I'll still, I'll still go one more. <laughs> you know, I was like looking for a little, any case. That's too late, whoever did that woo. See, if I solicit it, then it doesn't really count, you know? <laughs> Last one, real simple. What does Jesus believe? Jesus, he just approaches life differently. He approaches life differently. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, if you did this in your life, you will always have friends. You will always have hope. And you'll always have meaning. If you just simply learn to be a servant. In other words, the greatest thing that you could ever say to one another is simply this. Can I do anything for you? Is there anything I can do for you? See, that's such in contrast with the world that is so self-centered. The world says, what can you do for me? And Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life up for a ransom for many. And if you simply went your whole life and simply said, is there anything I could do for you? Is there any way I could serve you? Can I get you anything? Simply put, your whole life, I'm telling you, you'll have so many friends. You'll have so much hope. And you will have so much meaning in your life. If you simply said, is there anything I can do for you? That's how Jesus lived his life. Three short years, but impacted the world because he approached life differently. Life was not about me, myself, and I. His life was, well, what can I do for you? And if we approach life that way, I, I reckon most of us that deal with loneliness, you won't really be that lonely anymore. I'm telling you, you have so many friends. Simply said, okay, what can I do for you? Right? He approaches life differently. Let me conclude with this. You guys heard of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Great artist, philosopher. Da Vinci, he was, um, had a student with him. And he was painting a, a huge picture, huge mural. So he laid the perspective. He mixed the palette. And he started working on this canvas. And then uh, the, the story actually, so he, he abruptly stopped what he was doing. He turned to a student and he said, finish the painting. The student stared at the painting, you know, kind of did what artists do. And, and in an attempt to show humility at the greatness of da Vinci, he said, Master, 
I can't do that. I can't finish this painting. Da Vinci, the historian says, was shocked, upset. He looked at this student, and this is what he said. He said, what not, will not what I have done inspire you to do your very best? He said, will not what I have started, will not what I have done, does that not inspire you to do your very best? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has laid the perspective. He's mixed the palate. He lived this life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He started the work. And then he says, you finish the work. And in our attempt at humility, false humility at that, we say, oh, Lord, I'm not gifted enough. Oh, oh, Lord, I'm not powerful enough. Lord, I don't have enough resources. And Jesus says, well, not what I have started. Does that not inspire you to do your very best? But not what I have started. Jesus Christ came and showed us how to live this life. What not I have started does not inspire you to do your very, very best. Amen? Let's close our eyes.